Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to the finale of Season 9 of the Firetime Podcast. And I'm telling you, this episode is a treat. So for those of you who have been tracking along this season, we have broken it down into three sections where at the beginning part of this season, we talked with young up-and-coming leaders. In the midsection of our season, we spoke with peak performers, people who are running at full stride in their businesses. And to close out this season, we have been talking to legacy makers. And my definition of a legacy maker is someone who has been serving this industry for multiple decades. And at whatever time they decide to hang it up, there's a legacy left where there will be people following in their footsteps and trying to live into the shadow that is now left behind from this person exiting. And we've had some really, really good conversations as I think about it and just kind of rewind back to everyone that we've talked to. I'm just amazed at the ground we were able to cover. But I wanted to end this season with a conversation with my friend and mentor, Tim Rethlake. Now, You've been hearing me talk about it on the podcast leading up to now that this is a Q&A episode and we end every season of the podcast with a Q&A episode and I felt like, you know, Tim's wisdom is so needed right now and he's retiring in March and uh, man, I just felt like I wanted one more chance to be able to talk to him and sit at his feet to be able to glean some wisdom and In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground, like a lot. No joke, today's episode, I'm sure it's got to be the longest podcast episode that we've ever done. And as we were recording it, Tim was pushing me to split it into two parts, but you know, I, I, I think that this is something that we need to savor. So this episode is a marathon, and I'd like you to think about it like a nice bottle of wine, right? Open it up, let it sit, take in the aroma, slowly pour a glass, and savor it. Because when that bottle's gone, it's gone. And that's how I felt as I was in the conversation with Tim. And I think that the questions that were asked were terrific. Tim's responses are absolutely worth listening to. And I know for me, I am going to be going back to listen to my conversation with him repeatedly in the coming years because of the wisdom that he's speaking with. And so in just a second, I'm going to get out of the way for you to hear this conversation. But what I will say before then is how thankful I am for every one of you that listens. I've been able to meet many of you over the last four years doing this podcast. And as I travel, there's more and more folks who I, who I meet who have been touched by this. And it is absolutely my honor to host this show and speak with people who have wisdom and, and authority beyond what I have. And I'm really glad that it's making a difference, especially as we come into the holiday season this year, as I record this, we're in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I think more than ever, 
We need to be people of gratitude. If we want to be the leaders of the future, we have to change what we've inherited. And that starts with a posture of humility and generosity and gratitude. So I'm very thankful to everyone that listens. And I hope that you get tremendous value out of this episode. On the back end, I have a lot of thoughts and in particular, one final lesson that I have learned from TR that I cannot wait to share with you. So buckle up, get out a pen and paper because this episode is a gem. Joining me from St. Paul, Minnesota is the Director of Sales Effectiveness for Hearth and Home Technologies. I'm here with the man, the myth, the legend, Tim Rethlick. How you doing, sir? Timothy Reed, how are you, my friend? I'm great. You know, I am I'm sad about this podcast. I I've been I've been very excited leading up to it and and I'm sad. TR, you are the first guest that we had on the show. You've been a frequent guest, although it's been a little while. It's probably been a year, year and a half since we've had you on. Yeah, I think so. And as you are heading out towards retirement, you know, when I when I talk about legacy makers, you are the top of, of Mount Rushmore uh, in my mind. So thank you for being here. Well, Tim, that's that's very kind of you to say, and uh, I hope I'm I hope I go into the gone but not forgotten uh, category. Uh, I will be retiring from from HHT uh, at the end of March, but uh, I do still still plan to stay stay somewhat active and and hopefully uh, active and contributing to uh, to the hearth industry overall. Well, TR, we have a number of questions that came in, and I and I, I just feel like I, half this episode will probably just be me gushing about everything that you've you've given to me, uh, and half of it will be us answering questions, but. One of the things that I am so jealous of, and this has been true from the moment that I met you, is how quick your wit is. I am I'm just amazed at how quick your wit is. And I just I have not mastered humor like like you have, but also your wisdom. And I think as we as we get into these questions today, there's we're probably gonna get a really good combination of both. But I'm just I'm amazed how quick you think on your feet. Well, that's uh that's all relative. Tim, and that that is slowed down uh, to some degree, which is probably why this is a good time for me to be exiting the stage. And and it really, you know, I, I've been uh, uh, I, I mentioned it right before you hit record here, but I've, I've just been really impressed with this season of the podcast and the structure that you put to that of up and coming leaders and then shifting to peak performers and then shifting to legacy makers and it just has been, you know, it, it is just knit together so well. Uh, what I think has just been uh, terrific content. And uh, I've, I've jotted a couple of notes down here from some of the previous episodes this season, because there have been some things that your other guests have said that I, I've just was gobsmacked by how uh, useful. You know, not only is it smart and, and but it's u- really useful information. And so I, I hope your viewership has been up and strong this season because man, there's just been so much really good content this year. Oh, well, thank you. So as we jump into it, we have a lot of questions and, you know, we didn't put a time limit. This might, this might set a record for our longest episode ever. We'll see, but I want to, I want to jump right in TR. I'm going to ask you this first question. So 
to give a little bit of context, you know, we've been asking all season for people to email in questions and you are somebody, and I, and I would say like me, but I, I learned this really in a lot of ways from you. You're, you're someone who is so big on sales process and purpose and thinking things through and, 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 and you know, having a, a plan in the way that you approach sales. And this question goes to that. So this question says, we have spent an enormous amount of time training our staff and do not want to disrupt that. How can I be sure your sales process won't disrupt that? And for clarification, I'm guessing that, that that's going to be the seven-step fire time sales process that, that, that we've talked about. How would you answer that question? Yeah. And and you know, there yeah, you're you're right, Tim. I, I am really big on sales process. And and as you've alluded in some of the other episodes this year, you and I were together in Texas and you saw firsthand how many people raised their hand at an HPBA affiliate meeting when I asked the question and I flashed our sales process, right? Which is a basic six-step process. And and they're all pretty basic stuff, right? Like our six are, are connection, discovery, solution, estimate. And then based on what happens after that, the next step can go one of two ways. It's either fulfill or follow up. And then it's gratitude, right? Yours is a seventh step. There's, there's yep. a lot of basic sales processes out there, but I couldn't get a single hand in four different HPBA affiliate presentations of dealers or distributors to say, yes, we have one. And so I thought, well, maybe they were afraid I was going to pick on them. So I even said, hey, I promise if you raise your hand, I won't make you stand (laughs) up and tell us what it is. I won't pick on you just for the love of God. Does anybody have a sales process out there? And not one hand. Right. So for you, for, for you to get a question to come in that said from a, I assume this is from a dealer or a distributor in the hearth business that says we have spent an enormous amount of time, enormous amount, it says, training our staff and do not want to disrupt that. My short answer is, well, then don't. But are you getting the results you want? I'm going to guess they may not be because they're asking the follow-up question of how do they know your process won't disrupt it. So if you're happy with your results, why are you looking at another process? And if you're having to spend an enormous amount of time sales training, then my suggestion could be that either A, you've got too much turnover in your sales staff, or B, your sales process is too freaking complicated. Hmm. Yeah, you know, the thing that I think about with this is I, I I think, and this is what you alluded to, there's a lot of companies that probably think they have a process when they don't, you know? I, I like I think that I think that some of the businesses I've come through, the sales process would be a uh, customer comes in, ask them questions about their project and show them the fireplace that's the right fit. But that's not that's not a sales process because what questions do I ask? How do I do it? How do I know which fireplace to show based on these situations? You know, that's what a process will start to to do for you. And my thought, you know, when I was when I was managing the the retail stores that I had for for Fireside Home Solutions here in the Pacific Northwest, I would always look to reps to teach my team, even if the process steps they had were a little bit different than than the seven step process that we used. I felt like a rep's highest value to me was role-playing and practicing and helping my team fine-tune becoming better salespeople versus, you know, I can read about a product on the internet. I can read the PDF or watch the video on what it does, but I, I don't know. I, I, I love allowing your salespeople to think for themselves and exposing them 
to more content. Cause at the end of the day, I, I feel like let's let the best process win. You know, if, if we have a, a documented sales process and someone comes in and, and, and points out something that we that we're missing or there's a gap on, well, let's modify our, pl- our process to include that because in my view, it's not about my process winning or being the best. I, I always, I always talk about this whenever I'm doing consulting gigs is we're trying to make a diamond. And that means we got to push and push and push and pu- apply pressure and heat and fire. And the goal is not for my idea to win. It's that there's going to be a diamond when this thing's done. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's, you know, sometimes we can get caught up too in, in language, right? When there's sales training, which is ongoing, right? You always have PK training you have to do because products change all the time. You you should always have a practice of letting your uh, sales team practice sell on each other, so they're not practicing on your customers. But <laughs> you know, we we you and I have talked in the past about Proverbs. I think it's twenty seven seventeen, right? Iron sharpens iron. It's yeah. it's much harder for your salespeople to sell in front of your other salespeople. But man, that makes them so much sharper. That kind yeah. of training is ongoing. Sales process should really be part of how do you onboard a new salesperson? And it's inclusive of everything from, yeah, of course, here's the products, here's the price list, all of that sort of thing. But it should also include things like, here's our story. Here's how we believe we're tangibly different than the rest of the people in town. And oh, by the way, as the owner, you you are probably the best salesperson, right? Why is that? Well, because you have the, such an emotional attachment to the business that you have grown. You've had several mortgages on your home over the years to keep the business going. So, of course, you're going to sell very uh, emphatically and be very believable when customers come in. Um, but until you can transfer even some portion of that credibility and believability to your new salesperson, you haven't finished the job of fully onboarding them. And, you know, often it's, it's, it, we, we believe when we hire a new salesperson, we tell them, here's our story of origin. Here's why we're better. And we think they got it. Well, you don't know they got it until you hear them repeat it back to you. And so when you're onboarding, say, okay, you think you got the story? Great. Let me hear it and put them <laughs> on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. You know, what it what it makes me think about when you when you're talking about our story and and getting someone to emotionally feel the same way that you feel as an owner or as a manager with a vested interest in it. And 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 again, this came from you. I went I went to your builder sales rep training, I think it was down in California, um, this is probably six years ago or seven years ago. And and I came back and I wrote a document that was called our sales philosophy. And and it was different than our seven step process, but this document probably two thirds of it was just straight ripped off from you. And every time someone was hired on day one, we actually wouldn't hit sales process, but we would hit the philosophy and we would, we would just talk about why do we do what we do? How do we approach sales? Why is it so important that we help people? Where do we sit in the market? And then we'd move into, here's the seven step process on how we do it. And, and that was, yeah, that was, that was really big. But I guess with, with what you said too, I think that there is an element of you don't know how someone is until you see them do it on the spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's the, you know, the, the, there's an old Italian proverb that says, don't blow out the match until you know the candle is lit. 
<laughs> and so, yeah, we, we, it's like when we onboard salespeople, it's like we strap their head to a board and pour, put a funnel in their ear and pour product knowledge in there and business history and go, yep, okay, they got it. And we got to put a cork in their ear. So when they stand up, it all doesn't leak out. And, and we don't know that they got it until we hear it back. And of course, they're not going to have the same emotion and passion that you do as the owner, but they should have something that somewhat resembles that, right? So mm-hmm. that's what we're that's what we're going for. And they're not going to get it in the first week. It's not going to happen. But repetition over those first few weeks, that's that important onboarding slash sales process. <clears throat> and then the ongoing sales training, as we said, is ongoing product knowledge, practice selling all the things to stay sharp. And and I guess, because uh, I know we're going a lot of different ways to put a bow on this TR. So let's assume that this business does have a documented sales process. Mm-hmm. Would it be foolish for them to bring in a sales trainer that has a different process to speak to their team? Uh, if they're If they're getting the results they want, then I would say, yes, that would be foolish. But the question, if, if, and we're just, I'm just taking the question verbatim, right? It says we've spent an enormous amount of time training our staff and we do not want to disrupt that. Okay. But then right the next breath, it's how can I be sure your sales process won't disrupt that? Well, that's a bit schizophrenic, right? Mm-hmm. They're saying we got a lot, we're spending a lot of time on it. But if I bring you in, that's going to disrupt that. And I'm going, well, then don't bring it, don't bring a new one in. <laughs> You know, and so my my inference here can only be that they're not happy with the results they're getting. And if that's the case, maybe it's time to look at a different mousetrap. Yeah, I love that. Okay, next question. I think this actually feeds into it really, really well. Are great salespeople born with it or can they be made? Are great salespeople born with it? Okay. Um I'll go back to to something that Zig Zig Ziglar said uh, one time. He says, you know, I've I've read where a woman has given birth to a baby boy. I've read where a woman has given birth to a baby girl, but I've never read in the newspaper that a woman gave birth to a baby salesman or baby saleswoman. (laughs) So I think by inference, we can say, no, they're not born. Um, But having said that, uh, they, they can be developed but I think there's certain human characteristics that lend themselves to being successful in sales. And so uh, just a couple of those that are high on the list, Tim, is uh, I'd say being an ambivert. And that is a term that I first picked up in Daniel Pink's book, To Sell is Human, which is a book that's on my recommended list. And an ambivert, uh, Tim, is someone who is introverted by nature, but can be extroverted when they need to. So they can kind of play on, you know, both both sides of the ball, defense and offense. And because they're introverted by nature, their initial default mode is to listen, not to speak. And you know, I, I know you know how important the discovery and the understanding phase is to the sales yeah. process. 
And so ambivert's default mode is to listen first, but then when it's time to shine, when it's time to tell the story and to bring a solution and say, this is what it is, this is what it does, and that's important because you said, uh, they're able to do that. And so how do you find, if you're hiring a new salesperson, how do you find if if they are ambiverts in, in nature, by in quality? Uh, one of the questions that I like to ask in, in a sales interview is, tell me about your most longstanding friendship that you have, and when was the last time you spoke with that person? And the reason I ask that is because I'm interested in do they value relationship? And anybody that can say, gosh, well, you know, I've, I've got this, this guy that he and I have been buddies since eighth grade. And as a matter of fact, he was back in town for Thanksgiving and we made a point to go have a beer. Um, anybody that nurtures long-term relationships like that is someone that does have sort of that balance between introversion and extroversion. And so that's that's one of the questions that I like to, to ask to sort of get at that. Another one that will be very familiar to you that I look for is I look for a strong ego, not a big ego. Mm-hmm. And we won't give this a lot of oxygen here because you and I have talked about it a lot in the past. But it it goes back to Joseph Campbell's story of myth architecture, that that someone with a a strong ego can be the guide, but someone with a big ego has to be the hero. And as you've said on many of your episodes before, the customer is the hero. It's not about you. You're the guide. Right. And so uh, when you when you're interviewing for that, um, a question, a pretty simple question that sometimes trips people up is just when tell me when was the last time you went out of your way to help someone? Hmm. And I don't mean just holding a door open, coming into the building for the interview, holding a door open for somebody. I mean, out of your way, when was the last time you inconvenienced yourself to help someone else? Tell me that story. And you, if, if they readily can come up with two or three things, you probably have someone that is more in the guide mode than the hero mode. And that's what we need, right? Because as I said, we don't have to replow that hero versus guide field because we've done that yeah. before. And I guess, Tim, if I had to come up with a third one, it would for to look for raw, that raw DNA in, a, in, in someone that you could mold into a salesperson. I, I think a ma- mindset of being a lifelong learner is so critical. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I always ask potential sales candidates. I said, "What if? What do you tell me? What you're reading or listening to right now to to sharpen your saw, to to learn more, to yeah. challenge yourself, to challenge your thinking." And if I find out that they are currently reading two or three books, and it's a mix of fiction and nonfiction. That person has to do a lot wrong for the rest of that interview for me not to want to hire them. That is yeah. that is such a key skill for me today in that, you know, we all get addicted to our phones and we like to be served up video content yeah. and information. But if you've got somebody that's still a reader, the old saying about readers are leaders, very yeah. true still today. That's awesome. You know, I... I I've heard you talk about being a lifelong learner before and me and you have something in common and that we both dropped out of college and, and didn't finish. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I heard you talk about, about how that has fueled you to become a lifelong learner. And I think that's a big thing for me as well is there have been, there's things in my life that I have not been faithful to complete. And now that I have hopefully a little bit of maturity and, and some age under my belt as well, uh, I want to be faithful to complete what is in front of me right now. And, and, and being a lifelong learner is a way to achieve that. So, you know, one thing on this question where it talks about, are they born? I, I don't, I don't think a natural salesperson is born. I think they can only be made. And truly when, when someone tells me someone is a natural salesperson, my first instinct is this person's dangerous. That's truly because usually Mm. when someone says they're a natural born salesperson, very often when I meet those people, there's overconfidence bordering on arrogance. There's extreme uh, outgoingness. I don't know if that's a word. They're, they're, they're extremely outgoing mm-hmm. to the point of being a, a bother, you know, just because you will talk to anyone about anything doesn't mean that you should. And, and, and often there's a lack of self-awareness of, of how do people perceive them? That's been, that's been my experience. What I, what I do think though, and, and this is, this is something I think is true about, about myself. That's both a blessing and a curse is just for whatever reason, with the, ever since I was born, the things that I get excited about, I get really excited about. So like if you were to talk to me about sales or the fireplace industry or basketball or theology, like how much time you got, man? Like, you you want me to tell you about my kids or my wife? Like, dude, I'll be here all day and I'll tell you about all this stuff because I get really passionate about the things that, that I pour myself into. And, and, and while that by itself in no way makes a good salesperson, I do think that, that people who are excited about the things they're into, I think that that can be molded. That was the case for me. And this is not saying that I'm a great salesperson now, but, but I've been molded into the person I am uh, by harnessing that passion. I think that, I think that there's some people that you ask them what they're into. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I like, I like watching movies, you know, I mean, I, I can't, that's hard for me to work with, but, yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. I think that th- I think that there is something to harnessing that that passion, and and I think that salespeople are only made. I don't I don't think you're born with it. Yeah, uh, preach it, brother. I, I'm I'm with you on on all of that, and and I'm with you too. I get my my spidey senses go way up with because the the the, the programming is so negative, right? And and when somebody comes and says, "Oh man, this this guy would be a great salesperson. He's got such a gift for gab." And I go, yeah. no, 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 no. It's just, it's the opposite of that, right? Like every every salesperson that I meet tells me, Tim, look, I'm a consultative salesperson. I really listen. I really am patient. I really dig in. I uncover the customer's needs and the needs below the needs. I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm, I'm really about them and not me. And every customer I talk to says, I'd rather stick needles in my eyes than talk to a salesperson. Now, both <laughs> of those things cannot be true. They can't. And and so we have such a negative paradigm about salespeople. And I think it's because it's kind of like social media, right? There are, if you, and I'm, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here, but I'll come back yeah. out in about 20 seconds, I promise. There are eight percent of the population is on the very far left, loony bin left. There's six percent of the, comp- the population that's on the crazy right. It's fourteen percent of us. But if you look at social media, you would think it's eighty-six percent of us that are in the silent majority, right? Yeah. And so it's that same way with sales. There's a few 
bad stereotypes about salespeople out there that kind of ruin it for the rest of the professionals that are legitimately defaulting to helping understanding and then helping solve their customers problems. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. So uh, I want to keep going, but we're, we're pretty fresh on this list and I think that we should keep moving. This may Um, have to be a two parter. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I I think, I think this is going to be the marathon. It's the last, (laughs) it's the last one TR. Well, tell people to listen to it late so they can grab a beer. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Okay, so here's the next question. How much should you pay a new salesperson in the showroom? How much should be commission and how much should be a salary? Any thoughts there, TR? Oh, man. Um, I have some thoughts there, but I'm going to plead the fifth on this one. I'm, I'm going to check it out here because no matter how I answer this, either the leadership at Fireside Hearth and Home or the salespeople at Fireside Hearth and Home are going to be mad at me. So (laughs) you are not associated with a retail organization like I am. So I'm going to flip this back your way. Plus, you've got a lot more insight into it than I do because you've seen a lot more different retail organizations and you've been exposed to a lot of compensation structures. So how would you answer this? Oh man, it's so funny. I was actually, I was teaching at my neighbor's church the other day. And the first thing I said to the group is I said, I don't work here, so you guys can't fire me. (laughs) So, uh, okay. Here's what I would say. Um, I think that the, the first 90 days someone is in the showroom, they should be paid a a fixed rate, whatever is fair for the market to, to keep them employed and and to keep them happy. I, I think a fixed rate. But I do believe after 90 days of switching to some kind of an incentive plan, um, I, I really believe personally in an individual commission and bonus structure. I'm not opposed at all to businesses that would rather have a team structure, but I I find that the highest performers in general want to be compensated for what they do. And there could be there could be team elements in there, but that's that's just what I think. In general, I, I think that a high performing salesperson should probably be paid like 30 to 40% base and 60 to 70% should be commission and, and bonus. And so what, what I have seen very successful is if you put together an hourly rate for their base pay, and that's going to just going to depend on your market and, and what is fair and, and comparable, but I would, I would have a commission structure. Let's just, let's just throw a number out. Like maybe you do three to 6% depending on the volume of products. And I would put a margin protection on that where they need to maintain a certain margin threshold to make that commission. But what I would do is I, is I'm a big fan of a quarterly bonus. So every single month they've got their base pay and they've got their commission that they can count on. And again, if you have a professional over time, as they run their book of business, even though they're being paid more on the commission than they are on their base, they've proven they can get results. So it's not that much of a question as to what they're going to make. But I really believe in a quarterly bonus. And the reason is that a monthly bonus to me is, uh, it's not long-term enough. I I love for team members to have some kind of a vision for the future. And and so I like an all or nothing quarterly bonus because it's long-term enough. I can be thinking and planning, not just about what I'm going to sell this month, but what am I going to sell the next month and the next month? And I love that semi long-term vision. And I love that if they miss it, clean slate, 
you, hey, you got another one. You get four of them a year to go after. A yearly bonus I actually don't like because I think the stakes are too big. And if you get seven months into the year and realize that you're not going to hit this thing, I think it demotivates behavior where I think that the quarterly bonus motivates it appropriately. So so I would say first 90 days, you're probably going to need to pay more than you want because you need to just pay whatever salary you think they're going to be excited about to stay there and be able to fully live on because there's no commission. But the, that first 90 days, they're building their book of business to then jump into this this sliding scale pay that is a, a lower base salary with a commission every month and then a quarterly bonus that's all or nothing. That that's my thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And let let me peel that onion one one more layer here. Yeah. I'd like to get your opinion on this. Um, you know, it's not unusual uh for a couple to come into a hearth shop and meet with uh Tim Reed initially as their salesperson who does the discovery process, educates them, uh, suggests a couple of options, and their response is, okay, sounds good, big investment, though, we need to think about it, right? And so out they come, or out they go, they come in two days later, and they talk to Tim Rethlake and not Tim Reed. And so Tim Rethlake gets caught up in the story and actually ends up closing the sale that Tim Reed started. So there's, it's not unusual for one salesperson to start start a customer and another salesperson to finish up with them, right? That happens yeah. occasionally. So based on that, have you seen any organizations where very similar to the way you have it structured, but the bonus, the bonus part is actually an overall team bonus, not individual bonuses? Have you seen that work anywhere? Um, I haven't, but I think it's a really good idea. So in 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 my previous company, we, we, we had a variation of the plan that I just described that worked really well. Um, I love the idea of the quarterly bonus being a team bonus. I think that that is, that's terrific. We never had it. I do know of other companies that do have a team bonus, but they pay a base salary. And then I think twice a year they do a team bonus. So I, I haven't, I haven't seen that specifically laid out with, with the comp plan that I just talked about, but I, I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, I think it, I think it keeps everybody's head in the game, right? Because then in that scenario that I laid out, that that sale that's going to be your commission because you started with them, right? Yeah. But if there's a team bonus first overall for the team to do well, then I'm going to be motivated to try and make sure they're still very comfortable with us and believe we're the best solution, right? I'm not going yeah. to blow them off because I'm going. Well, this is Reed's sale, whether it lives or dies, not mine. I'm going to go. Cry, I'm going to yeah. talk to the new people. So I, I think it does kind of. I, I like to have. Uh, I, I think it just makes sense structurally if you can have performance, individual performance compensation. That yeah, you you eat what you kill. Um, but then there's also sort of this band of brothers mentality that especially yeah. in season, we're going to, we're going to have each other's back too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, TR, let's keep moving. The next question is this is, is company culture even a real thing anymore with how often people job hop? Uh, is company culture a real thing with how often people job hop? So that that's like a chicken and egg thing, right? Do do people job hop because the culture doesn't exist, or does the culture not exist because you have turnover and and you don't have you know and and that doesn't allow you to to have culture? I see what you're doing here. I see what you're and, doing here. And culture is one of those you know Harvard Business School words again, right? Yeah, I go. <clears throat> I always go back to what uh, 
uh, Supreme Court Justice Potter said in 1964, <clears throat> excuse me, about pornography, when he says, I can't describe it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> cultures, cultures the same way, right? I can't really give you, I mean, I can give you a Harvard Business School definition of what culture is, or you get people to go, well, culture is what your people do when nobody's there, to, when the boss isn't there to tell them what to do. Uh, you get other people that go, the only culture around here is in the yogurt in the fridge in the break room. There's uh, there, there's a lot of different definitions of culture, but I do know this, and I and I think you'll bear this out. When I walk into a business, I just feel it. I can tell in the first yes. 30 seconds if that's a positive culture or a negative culture, if that has an abundance mentality in that organization or a scarcity mentality in that organization. And um, this whole thing about job hopping, hopping and quiet quitting, right? That's that's all the head business headlines today about people just doing the bare minimum, knowing that they won't get fired because there's such a shortage of, of labor today. Um, I, I do believe this. I, I believe that people do not leave their jobs over compensation. The vast majority don't. They leave bad bosses and bad bosses lead to bad cultures. And so when, again, let's go back to this. I'm, I, I'm such a stickler about onboarding. You know, when, when you hire me and, and bring me in, does it, do I get the feeling that you're expecting me, right? Are there business cards with my name and my title of retail sales associate on there? Yeah. Um, if, if I get my own company phone, is that ready to go or do I have to wait a week for that? It, is my schedule laid out that day? Is the boss taking me to lunch that day? Is that, am I going to lunch with the owner? Uh, did, are they expecting me? Is that, how did I get ex introduced to the rest of the team? Did somebody take me around or did the people just kind of come by and go, who are you? Right. So this whole thing about, you know, is, it, 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 is, all this turnover of job hopping and uh, quiet quitting negative to culture, I would say that the, the, the inability to have a strong, inclusive culture is what's causing the quiet quitting and the job hopping, in, in my opinion, at least. How do, how do you see it? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I, I think that there are some jobs, particularly entry-level jobs, that are hard to retain people for. And if you think about that, well, if it's an entry-level job, so by definition, the job will probably be a revolving door anyway. Mm -hmm. And if there are other companies that have non-entry-level jobs that are available, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer that you would probably leave for that. So I think that I think that that does that does play a role. I think that I think that entry-level jobs, they are tougher to keep to keep staffed just by nature of what they are. Um I, I do think though what you said about about the culture coming from the bad boss is so true. I mean, and when you talked about walking into a business, man, I, I swear it's like a spiritual sense, man. There's businesses I've walked into, I can feel the cynicism. Yeah, like, you want you want to burn some just, sage when you get in there. Oh man, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and, and likewise, I was actually at a business the other day where I walked in. And, and, and it's a nice showroom, not, not the best showroom I've ever been in, but it's a, it's a solid, nice showroom. But when you walk in, I've never felt as good as I've ever felt. And I, and I told the team, I said, this is the best first impression I've ever seen from a company I've been into 
And, and, and again, like we're not talking about the sales process, things in the showroom. Like we can talk about all that later, but I've never had a first impression that's this good because you can just feel these people care about each other. They like each other. They want to help their customers. So yes, I think it is a real thing. And I, and I believe as the manager or owner, man, your number one job needs to be the culture of the business. And often that gets neglected because owners and managers tend to be nose to the grindstone. They work their way into being able to solve more problems. So now they do solve more problems, which means their time is thinner and they don't have time for the fuzzy stuff. But, you know, a a culture is not, you know, we've talked about this. It's not, it's not the cereal bar in like the nap room, like Google has A, a culture is, do I know where we're going and can I trust the people with me to help me get there? I think that's what a culture is. If I don't trust the people that are with me to, to, or, or I don't trust the direction of where is this thing going, all of a sudden there's cynicism or I'm looking over my back. Like that's where sarcasm and, and cynicism and all that starts is by people. Well, maybe the boss doesn't have my best interests in mind. I don't know where the stupid company's going. Yeah, that's the way we've always done it, you know? Yeah. Um, there's, so, yeah. There's, um, I, I, if I can build on that for a second, Tim, Patrick Lencioni says that there, you, you got to, if you want to retain people, there, there's got to be three keys to it. Where's the organization headed? What's my role in that? And on a day-to-day basis, how do I, can I tell how I'm doing, right? Mm. Do I, without my manager being there, is there some scoreboard or is there some metric that I can tell on a day-to-day basis, how am I doing in my part of that overall mission? And and I, it, it, I'd like to push back, if you don't mind, on, on something you said about entry, yeah. entry-level jobs. Um, I'm going to go back to, um, your, your episode with Mark Stoner from Ashbusters, which yeah. by the way, in my opinion, may be the best episode of the Firetime podcast so far. Um, wow. I, I've circulated that to more people. I sent that episode to more people than I send the ones that I'm on and you know, I'm not lacking in <laughs> self-confidence. So, um, he was so good. And one, I, I was listening to that when I was on a walk and I, it took me forever to finish my walk. Cause I was always top stopping and typing notes into my phone that you guys were talking about. But one thing he said is whether you have been in the industry for a day or for 20 years, your first year with Ash Busters, you're an apprentice. And he's, he, that mm-hmm. first year is totally laid out, right? So why do we have to have entry-level jobs? Can't we present a progression ladder that yeah. says, here's what, when, when people come into our organization, they, as they learn more about the business, they get a bit of a feel for would they rather be on the sales side or would they rather maybe be in the field, right? We, we've yeah. got all kinds of examples of installers who became salespeople, salespeople who became previewers, right? Salespeople who became purchasing people. People jump yeah. around all the time. So, when we bring someone in, do we take the time to say, yeah, there's a few different paths you can walk in this company here. And let's let's get you in. Let's get you into this first role. Let's make sure you're happy with us overall. We're happy with you. And let's see where it leads. But our intent is that you're here for a long time. Man, that is so wise. It, it, it makes me think, and I, I don't mean to, to drag this question on, but years ago, I was at an event where a local uh, franchise owner of, of one of the Chick-fil-A restaurants talked and he and talked about the three P's that every team member is looking for 
a purpose, a plan, and a paycheck. And if you can satisfy those three things, they're probably going to stick with you. And the plan, that's what you just that's what you just talked about. Yeah, that's true. Very wise. Yeah, love that. Okay, so our next question is this. I know that using a CRM might be able to help us, but it seems like it's going to take a lot of time. How do you find the time when you are already slammed? Any thoughts on that, TR? Um, one one quick one, and then I'm going to flip back. Now, this is another one I'm going to kind of flip back your way, because if I'm not mistaken, I think you're very intimate with a CRM process. <laughs> um, but I'm going to go back to another episode that I really thought was fabulous was Dave Rettinger's episode in your up and coming leaders. Um, I, I was just blown away at what he, the passion he's bringing to that business. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I know his dad, I knew his mom when, when she was still with us. And, and so I was just, um, I was really emotionally touched that, that he's, he's getting into that business so, so deeply, but, um, Something that when and he was talking about, it, I think, in context of putting in, you know, his Striven software package. And I think it was you actually brought the question up to him about when when do you find time to do it? And he goes, you know what? It's a lot of times in the evenings when I'm the only one sitting here. And he said that because you can't you, you, you can't change the oil while the car is going down the road. Right. So you got you got to get it. You got to stop it, shut it off, get it up on the rack. Um, and so. It's it's that you for the short period of time, slow is fast. You weren't you've heard that somewhere before. You gotta take the time now and put in the extra hours, either early morning or late in the evening or on a Sunday afternoon. But to 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 install something like that takes an investment up front in hopes of making that time back. And that's really what a CRM is, is a time machine. Yeah, it, it also makes sure that you you're not placed chasing just wasting salespeople's time. So, what's what's your riff on a, on the benefit of a of a customer relationship management package? Yeah, I I agree. I, I time machine is is literally the word that came to mind when I saw this question. I believe that a CRM properly used is a it's a time machine that if you if you think about it most hearth retailers are operating by the skin of their pants, right? And they're just running and, 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 and when's the next person going to come in? I don't know, man, we haven't had many door swings. What are we going to do? Well, we better call up the local radio station and see if we can, you know, get a, get a deal on that, on that radio ad that we ran last month. And, and that's not the way that we want to run our businesses. Um, the, the value of this for me, it, it really came from my, my time when I was at fireside and every single day, we had a company backlog that was sent to everyone on the team, the whole company. So I could always see how much work had we sold that was coming up. And I could actually see what days of the week is it going to be installed. And what that caused me to do is it, it, we didn't use a CRM, but, but what that report caused me to do is to think, oh, I actually can start to look at my jobs that are coming up and therefore plan what I'm going to make. And then if I could actually look back at my customers that I talked to last week and the week before that, I could actually start to fill up my backlog intentionally and on purpose. And, and it, that was kind of what, what drew me to, to, to using a CRM. So, so my belief is that a CRM, it, it is a time machine in the sense that if you can look at something and, and see all your customers and in, in 30 seconds be able to tell which opportunities are my best, which opportunities are down further in the sales funnel where they're closest to purchasing, and when was the last time I talked to these people, and what are my notes on what I need to do next, 
that is a very, very powerful bit of information where a, a salesperson can absolutely go hog wild with it. So uh, all that to say, it will save you time because it, people that complain is that, well, I can't enter each customer into the CRM. And you think about it and it's like, well, okay, so what do you do otherwise? You forget about them when they leave. That's not helpful. Um, or you could write it down on a piece of paper and lose it or coffee gets spilled on it. And at some point you're going to have to type that information up anyway. So, so my thing is like, you, you need to do it because this is how you move from an amateur to a professional that if, if you have a salesperson who has a book of business, they can look back at, you know, all of their opportunities. They have them organized by what stage of the pipeline they're at. They're organized by how good of an opportunity it is. That's a salesperson that is due for a raise or due for a promotion or, or due for more flexibility in their job because they've proven that they know how to manage a book of business. And every business owner in the world is after consistent revenue. A CRM is how you start to get consistent revenue. The question about time is how do you find, you know, how do you find time when you're already slammed? There's definitely a time and place where, you know, after hours, you you probably need to update that thing. The good news is, and this is going to be for retail associates, not as much folks in the builder world, but in the retail space, even in the heart of the season, you're maybe talking about five customers to 10 customers a day. And if you're going to be entering the basic information, I mean, I'm like 15 minutes is about all you need at the end of the day. I mean, if you had like a, like a post workday ritual where once the door closes, you know, you pour yourself a cup of coffee and you take 15, 20 minutes to update your dashboard, that's a really wise use of time. And now the next day when you come in, you know where all that stuff's at and you can make follow-up calls on it. Plus when the, when the economy starts to dry up, which we are seeing now, you've got all that, all that potential in your CRM to start calling back. So that's a long way of saying, I, I believe that there are no excuses. Um, you, you have to, and, and truly as a, as a boss, and I know I'm going long on this, I'm, I'm sorry, but as a boss, I would tell my teams, if you don't use this, I will fire you period. If you do not use this, you will not have a job here, but I will help you use it. I will schedule time with you for 15 minutes in the morning to help you. I will schedule time with you 15 minutes after work. I will help you with this. But if you're not willing to play ball, you're not going to have a job here because this is this is how we do it. Well, and it's much it's much easier when you're hiring a new salesperson to say, oh, by the way, here's how we do it here. Yeah. Um, and you and I have talked in the past that, you know, you have a sales process when you're onboarding somebody and you go, this is how we do it instead of this is how I do it. Yeah. If they say, this is how I do it. You ain't got a process, right? You just don't. And I'm glad you mentioned the B word of, of builder. A CRM is so critical if you're in the builder arena as well, oh, because yeah. you've got a salesperson that, you know, if 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 you lose track of a consumer uh, contact information because the salesperson didn't follow up, whatever, that's a lost sale. But if you lose contact with a builder who builds 60 homes a year, and your builder sales rep was the only contact and that rep left you. Now you're trying to figure out, okay, who's the, it's not, I, I know they got a new purchasing person, but I've never met them. I'm not quite yeah. sure what their scheduling process is. I'm not sure how we should be invoicing. You're, you're back from scratch, right? And so a CRM is uber critical when you're doing builder business. Yeah. And, and I think it is probably a little bit more detailed than it is with, with kind of one time in one time out retail business. Yep. One thing I'll say though, is, is I really believe 
there's a difference between a standard CRM and a sales CRM. And this is what this is what I mean by that. So many companies out there, and I'm not going to name names of software, but have, have a software system that touts a CRM. And by that, they mean I can look up a customer, I can look at their unit, look at when it was put in, look at our notes of every time they've called us. And that's true. That is a, that's a long-term customer relationship management system. But I actually believe a sales system is different than that. I, I believe that a sales CRM must have a dashboard where in 30 seconds I can view all my opportunities ranked by pipeline stage, ranked by the best opportunity with immediate notes of what is the latest thing that's happened, when am I calling them next? And I've found that in our industry, uh, I, I will say that most, and I'm going to say that very carefully, but, but most systems that claim to have a CRM do not have a functional sales dashboard. And so I would encourage people to look for a sales CRM, even if it means adopting a second system where once you've made the sale, then you push all of those notes into your you know long-term customer relationship CRM that your service team, your installers and stuff use. But I believe sales is so important. It's the tip of the spear. If you are not investing in a sales dashboard CRM for your team, you're handicapping yourself. Yeah. And, and I think, Tim, it's important enough next season, you could probably do a full-on episode and bring on two or three or four businesses that are effectively using it, uh, a CRM. Mm. And, and I think that'd be a uh, big value for your listeners. I'm writing that down now. We might do that, TR. Good call. Um, okay, let's uh, let's jump into this next question. How much do you think we should collect before installation? Um, I'm going to make this really short because there's more that I want to get to and we're not even halfway through. Uh, I would say 50%. Um, I know of some companies that take 75, some that take 95 um, I believe in 50%, but I'm willing to be wrong about this. As long as you have a process and you can defend it, I think that's fine. Um, the thing that I would say is I always hear the arguments of like, well, you know, when you go to Home Depot, you, you pay for the refrigerator before it gets put in your house, you know, or you, you pay for the, the TV at Target before it gets put in your house. And I get that, but but Home Depot is not ripping a hole into my wall Um to, to put in the TV, you know, or the dishwasher. And I just believe when you're ripping a hole in someone's wall, uh, you got to give the customer some leverage. And I think that 50% is just a fair amount to say, mm-hmm. Hey, this is, this is what we take. And we'll, 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 we'll take the rest of it when the job's done to your completion. I think anything more than that, it's not that it can't be done, but I think you're actively facing resistance and you're possibly building ill will with the customer. Even if they, even if they go for it, when things go sideways, um, I, I think that I think that taking less rather than more is good. So so I would say fifty percent. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And if I look at this from a consumer, right? I'm and and the salesperson says, okay, so this this stove or this insert that you've just agreed that that that's that that's going to solve your problem, we're going to take a fifty percent deposit because that then allows us to order that product in for you. It's on hold yeah. for your names on it, right? Yeah. So I'm going, okay, that sounds reasonable. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, next question here. If you were running a shop and had fifty to $75,000 in an advertising budget, how would you use it and what goal with your skill set would you expect to do in gross sales? Um, I'll try to make this quick again because there's a lot of different... You, you could take this in a lot of different directions. Um, this might sound crazy. Uh I would say that for most hearth retailers, I think that fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars a year is too much of a marketing budget. So I would I would not spend that full amount of money. Um, I would say 
that you need to do some kind of Google and Facebook advertising. And I would say maybe to the tune of like 1200 to 1500 bucks a month. I mean, you, you could do more than that, but again, going back to it, if you've got a sales CRM where you're tracking every opportunity that comes in, you're calling back your customers seven, eight, nine times to pursue those opportunities. You don't need to rely on advertising. So I would say 1200 to 1500 bucks a month on, on Google and, and Facebook advertising. I would invest in SEO, um, in my old company and, and this, you know, you may say this is not enough money, but SEO to me is, 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 uh, necessary, but I get really nervous when I don't know what I'm paying for. And, and it can get really fuzzy with SEO. What am I paying for? Where are the goal lines? So what, what I did previously with a company that I, that I, I trusted is I just said, look, our budget's 500 bucks a month. Um, do what you can and give me a goal where in six months I can look at it and say, did we achieve it? And I know you want me to spend more and I know there's better things you could do, but that's what we did. So 500 bucks a month SEO. Um, if you look at that, you know, say even 1500 bucks a month, um, in, in Google, 500 bucks a month in SEO, that's about 24 grand for the year. Um, what I would do with the rest is I would pay for a, uh, review system, like something like bird eye or pulse M or one of those things that gets you active Google Yelp and Facebook reviews. And I would, I would spiff your team, you know, even like 20 bucks per review. I, I would, I would spiff very, very heavily to try to get, get those Google reviews up to three, four 500. Cause again, regardless of SEO, if someone punches in fireplace store into Google, you've got 500 reviews and that store that's next to you has, you know, 83, you're going to get in that bat. There's no question you're going to get in at bat. So I would make an investment in that. Um, and then the other thing I would, I would invest in is a really courteous thank you gift to your customers. I'm thinking about Ryan Blake from Chimney Techniques, and, and I think she still is, but, but for a long time, she was giving customers a really nice blanket with a coffee mug and some nice locally brewed coffee. And I don't know what that costs. That probably costs 20 bucks or 30 bucks maybe, but, but they would give that to every client. And, and I believe it's the, it's the gratitude piece that we've talked about, you know, with you on the show before TR is, is every customer that buys from you make them feel so special. I mean, literally, uh, I went to Minneapolis with HHT three years ago for a, a, a Vikings football game. And, and, and HHT, you know, put me in a really nice hotel. And in the hotel, there's this ridiculous blanket that was so nice. And to this day, I've got it in my living room. And every single time I pull that blanket out with people, I tell them the story because I just couldn't believe that a, you took me out there and B that I got to keep this blanket. So all that to say, um, I would make that investment and every customer, you know, send them a $5 Starbucks card with a, a handwritten thank you note, put five of your business cards in it, ask for a referral. I mean, my guess is that if you add up all those things, I, I still think we're easily, easily under $40,000 for the year, probably maybe even under 35,000. Um, that's how I would spend it. And I would, uh, I would take the rest and, uh, I'd pay for my, my kids, uh, college, maybe no. one year of it. That, that's, that's what I would do. Okay. That, that sounds good to me because I know absolutely nothing about best practices for hearth wheeler advertising and, and, and I can prove it. And, but, but I am <laughs> glad, um, VP Berger's wife, Kristen, always was wondering what happened to her blanket. So I'm glad I can solve that mystery now for, for her and <laughs> yeah. solve, solve that one. So uh, I'm glad you're enjoying it uh, out there. Yeah. And, and I guess the question too about gross sales, it's going to depend market to market, but I would say um, a B level salesperson, again, these are, this is going to change market to market, but I would say generally speaking, in my view, a B level retail salesperson that's not doing new construction work 
is probably going to be selling between six hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars a year. I think an A level is going to be between eight hundred and a million. And I think once you get over a million, you're an A plus category range. That that's what I think. And and that, you know, obviously that if you're in a very small market that's much more rural, those numbers are probably going to be lower. If you don't offer installation, take thirty percent off of those numbers. Um, but and, and and I would say first year salespeople I'm very lenient with. First year, I almost always set a goal of under $400,000 because again, that first year, it's the apprenticeship, it's the investment and you, and you might get more out of them. But as far as a return, that's what I would, that's what I would say. We'll get back to our conversation with Tim Rethlake in just one second. Hey, if you've been listening to the podcast in real time, then right now, I know it's the heart of the busy season for you. It's the middle of winter. Customers want their quotes right away, and many businesses feel overwhelmed and short-staffed. Well, there's no end in sight. I was actually talking with someone the other day, and despite the level of busyness, they were saying that their sales and their profitability aren't actually any different even though they're busier than ever, they're not seeing the sales increase and the profitability that should be coming with that. Well, if that's where you've been stuck, you have to take advantage of Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is software made for our industry to help you write up lightning fast estimates. If you've been struggling to train sales team members, build a sales process, and manage a book of business, Wi-Fi is set up to help you do those things. I used to think that it took two years to bring someone up to speed on quoting fireplaces accurately, I'm telling you now, it takes about two days. Now, what Wi-Fi will do is it will give you guardrails for new team members so that you can onboard them and manage their progress. Plus, the dashboard CRM is an amazing tool to keep track of your book of business and grow sales even in a down economy. If you're sick of playing defense and you want to start playing offense, you need to schedule a demo for Wi-Fi today. You can do that by going to the website wifire.com. That's W-H-Y-F-I-R-E.com. Don't keep spinning in the same hamster wheel week after week. Take advantage of Wi-Fi and get control of your business so that you can create prosperity for yourself and the people you serve. Okay, um, TR, let's go to the next one here. Question number eight. What does a successful hearth dealership look like in the future? Mm. Okay. Um. I love the future questions because you can't be wrong, right? <laughs> um, I think, I think Tim, there's 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 two paths that you can take as a business owner, and you can you can you got to walk one of them. And one is to be an inch an inch wide and a mile deep, and the other path is to be a mile wide and an inch deep. So let's take the first one of an inch wide and a mile deep. Is that is pure hearth expertise in the market that you can cover. And and that means uh, everyone in your market, you are the first name that comes to mind, whether it is an in-store experience, an in-home experience, an online experience. It means you're covering both the retail and the new construction sectors 
that you uh, have proactive outreach to realtors who are involved with trying to get a home listed and all of a sudden the inspector said, yeah, the chimney's no good. So now you need that realtor to tell that homeowner to call you so that you can get in there quick like a bunny and get a gas insert in there. So the realtor can now in the listing say, hey, brand new energy efficient gas insert in this new home listing. It is knowing that that swim lane so deeply that you're almost bulletproof to competition and coming in. That's the inch wide, mile deep. We we just have blinders on and nobody can can touch what we do here. The other future path that I think is is also going to sort of surface here, and you're already starting to see it surface, is a company that they describe themselves more as we are in the home comfort and entertainment. That's what we do. And if you now have broadened your umbrella out into home comfort and entertainment, now, yeah, does that include hearth? Yeah, it absolutely does. But it also includes outdoor living. And that gets into grilling, right? I'm looking at you, Grant Falco, and what you do in your business. It's it's the, maybe it's outdoor furniture, looking at the Bacaisos in Pittsburgh, who do a tremendous job with that. Um Maybe it's that if you're into home comfort, maybe it's the if you're in a southern market where it's really hot, maybe you're installing the mister systems right out in Arizona, yeah. out in that desert. And if you're going to install the misters, if it's home comfort, why don't we also do the mosquito control that can be part of that? Right. So you can really sort of branch out. And if you say all things home comfort and entertainment, now you are more of an events opportunity with your business. So your showroom is more than just a showroom. You're hosting a lot of events there, especially if you're in the grilling and outdoor entertaining market. And I think it's going to be important, Tim, it's not just in hiring, but also in the the millennials, the Zs and the Xers um, that, are, that are coming up. They want to know, what is your commitment to the community? What do you what do you care about other than, yeah, we know you create some jobs here. We appreciate that. But what are the causes that that you support? And so if you're in that home entertainment and comfort sector, man, that gives you the opportunity to host a lot of events for some of the nonprofit organizations. Maybe you can give a 30 year parking lot to the Boy Scouts to put up their Christmas tree lot. Right. And. How can you sort of get involved and, and be even broader? I think that's the the hearth shop of the future. If you're going to go broader like that, is going to be very, very deeply involved in community activities. And then um, the the thing that I would tell you is, regardless of which paths you want to take, uh, I would almost say it's required to go back and listen to the up and coming leader episodes from this season as well as the peak performer episodes and stop there. Do not listen to the legacy builder episodes. Don't listen to the Eisenhowers and the new Kirks and the newbies and the Rethlakes. We got way too many miles in the rearview mirror than we do the windshield. And so don't come to us advice about where to skate to. We'll tell you stories all day long till you get bored about where the puck used to be. We're not the ones you want to talk to about where the puck's going to go. So really talk to some of the people that that Reed has put on here with those up and coming leaders and peak performers. I'm I'm very, very hyped about those other guests you had this year. I don't know if that has come through yet or not, but I'm pretty excited. about that. <laughs> Yeah, I, that's cool to hear, Tim. 
I think uh, even for me in the moment, you know, going through many of those episodes, I, I just, I felt like there were, this is something really special and that's, that's cool to hear that affirmed. Um, you know, yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting to think, I mean, cause I've, I've, uh, I've only been on the, the journey that I've been on where Lord willing, there's more in the windshield than there is in the rear view mirror for me. And we, we don't know, us know what the future holds, but because that's my only experience, um, that's where I tend to, to look. Um, but it does make sense that when you're, when you're on the tail end of your career, you're not, you're not looking the same way because you're, you're not worried about, you know, where's this thing going to be in, in 20, 30, 40 years. So yeah, that's, that, that's a, that's a really interesting, interesting take to, to go back and listen to those folks and, and to, to take the legacy makers and based on what they've gone through in the past, how does that give you wisdom for the future? Um, I would say just as a quick aside, you know, a successful hearth dealership in the future. I mean, this is, this is, you know, maybe a little bit morbid, but I would say that if, if nothing changes, I think in the next 10 to 15 years, um, there's gonna be a lot less hearth retailers than there are right now. Um, I just think that our, our industry is at a turning point age where there's not a lot of succession planning. There's not a lot of businesses that are even able to be sold. And you look at the rise of, of e-commerce. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, it, as a retailer, sometimes you think, oh, great, you know, we're we're 10% up for the year or 12% up, 15% up. But it's like, well, okay, during COVID, we had, you know, nine price increases. So you kept up with the price increases and grew 3%. Oh, I mean, is that is that good? Not not really. They, that That's that's okay. Um, but you think about these, you know, these e-commerce companies. There's e-commerce companies that are doing a hundred to $200 million a year. And like when they grow 10%, they're, they're at millions and millions of dollars to their, to their revenue. And there's a ton of these companies out there. I, I think that our, our industry and by our industry, I mean, I mean, brick and mortar retailers do not realize what has been given away to the internet. We, we've already given 50 plus percent of the market away over the last 15 years. We just gave it away and we can't be, satisfied doing what we're doing because our sales funnel is broken and, and we have to adapt. So, um, I say if nothing changes, I think there's going to be a lot less, but I think this, that the successful ones will be maniacal about the customer experience. They'll be just maniacal about what happens from when someone comes in to the time that they leave. How do we solve their problem? How do we follow up? And that goes into like what you talked about, even with like events and, um, outdoor spaces. And, and so all, all that to say, I, I think that, I think that we are, we are standing on the edge of a precipice and, and it's up to, it's up to us what, what happens in the future. Yeah. And Tim, uh, there, there, there's a, before we leave that there, there's, yeah. there's another view of, of econ and we've, Hearth and Home has been, we, we've been doing a lot of research in this sphere overall on how e-commerce impacts Hearth. And, and, you know, we've spent, got a couple of years and a not insignificant amount of research here. Um, no surprise here that the vast majority of consumers start their hearth search online, right? It, yep. It's a relatively large investment. So their consumers, just like us, you and I start online when we're trying to figure things out, right? Yeah. But interestingly, 70% of the consumers who start online end up purchasing from a specialty hearth retailer because as they get educated, they start to understand, oh, this, this is a little bit more involved on the installation process than what I thought, right? So now that who can help me with that part of it? 
So I think e-com is actually going to be the tide that's going to rise, raise all the boats because the vast majority of consumers in this country who are sitting with a cold, drafty, wood-burning fireplace have no idea that there is a solution that looks a lot like a gas insert. And as they get more educated online, they're going to, seven out of 10 of them are going to come back to a specialty retailer, and it's going to be whoever's close to them and then can then, then tell the best story when they give you a call. So I think e-com is going to, is going to actually help our industry overall. I'm glad you said that. And I, now that you said that, I'd love to, to just give one more thought. I, I would agree. And I, I think that the successful hearth retailer, if I could boil it down to one sentence of the future, is the one who can seamlessly start the sale digitally or physically and continue it digitally or physically to whatever point the customer wants to make the purchase. That's the retailer who will win is that it's got to be seamless. If you can start digitally and take it all the way through and still have your product installed safely by the local company, or they want to start digitally, but then end in the store or maybe vice versa. They start in the store, but they go to their vacation home. So I, I think, I think it's being able to navigate and marry the digital and physical space. Totally agree. And local hearth retailers have an advantage in installation that, that e-commerce guys would kill for. So, yep. so take advantage of that. Yep. Take advantage of that. Um, okay, this is a question that's really good, and it, it's a little bit of a lengthy one. I'll try to summarize it. It has to do with service, and um, this person is asking about how, what can the whole industry do to jumpstart the service side of the business, right? Um, he mentions in a past podcast episode, an owner that I worked for describes service as a necessary evil. Um, obviously, installation is high ticket, um, but scaling the service departments might be necessary, especially in, in light of electrification and, and and the fact that there could be a lot less gas fireplaces being put in, you know, 10 years from now. So, so the question is, does the hearth industry need more dedicated training and possibly a certification of the repair and service side? Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Tim? I, there's a couple things that I'd love to hit on once, once you're done. Um. Well, I, I mentioned that the Mark Stoner episode is the one that I've recirculated probably more than any other. And many of the people who received that email from me were business owners who have the paradigm that service is something they have to have, not something they want to have. And so I, I mentioned I was on a walk when I listened to that episode and it stopped me in my little my little Nikes when he said he charges 429 bucks to put two guys in a truck in a driveway and he's got 20 plus trucks and they're all busy. And that's a par- yeah. that's a paradigm shifter. And he says they are paying me for my expertise. They want to get this chimney problem off of their calendar and they're willing to pay to do that. And so it's that whole mindset shift that needs to happen with so many owners who just they've just got the wrong view of service. And, and many of them aren't charging enough for their service. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Um, I, one thing I found, too, is we, we I, I used to work for a company that charged service in 15 minute increments at $60 an hour. Now this is years ago, but every time the customer came in and they would say, well, how, how much does it cost to get my fireplace repaired? And we would go, oh, well, it depends what's wrong. I mean, if, well, if it's a pilot assembly, 
you know, that the pilot assembly, it, it can cost $150. It also could cost $250. And then it, the labor on it, it, it might take 45 minutes. Now we, we charge $60 an hour, um, 50 minute increments, minimum, minimum of 30 minutes. So you'll spend, you'll spend $30 for your first 30 minutes. And then, um, you know, if it takes an hour, it'd be $60. And you can hear how confusing that is. And customers they're, are just they're going, lost already. Like, what? Yeah. They're lost. Yeah. yeah. So I, I really believe in flat rate pricing, you know, mm-hmm. when, when, when my, when my Highlander needs a new fuel pump or fuel filter and I go to the Toyota dealer, they don't, they don't give me that explanation. They just say, Oh, you know, this is going to cost $425 mm-hmm. and I can either take it or I can leave it. Mm-hmm. Now, if I want to shop that price, that's fine. I can do that. But there are so many people that are willing to have their problem solved. Like you got to make the pricing easy and, and, and many businesses. Yeah. Don't, don't charge enough. The other thing, this is just a cool tip that I've had. I've worked with a, with a, with a, a business I'm thinking of that has a really big customer list, you know, I mean, 15, 20,000 customers. And what we would do is once a quarter or so, we would, we would send out an email marketing campaign and basically just offer a service special. And it would be five emails. So like the first email would go out and, um, it would have their service special for, you know, the basic cleaning and maintenance or whatever on their gas fireplaces. And if the customer did not click the link to book, then another email would go out, you know, five days later. And then if they didn't click the link to book, another email would go out a week later and then a week and a half later, whatever, whatever it was. But basically over a period of about three weeks, they would get five emails. And, um, what we would do is because they had so many customers and they were worried about overwhelming their team, we would break it down into five groups of the alphabet. So like for these three weeks, we're going to send out to email addresses starting with a through E. And then these next three weeks will start E through, I don't know, H, whatever it is. And I would say we, we did this four or five times and it was rare to actually get the campaign through the entire alphabet because there was so much overwhelming response from the people that were there. So I would encourage you run that on repeat, you know, twice a year, three times a year and, and just keep track. Like, okay, we made it through our A through H customers with these two campaigns. Okay. Once the season lets up, we're going to start with G or whatever letters after H, um, H I start with I thank you TR. I can't think on my feet like you. I see you laughing at me there, but that's what I would do. Um, I think that those are ways to bolster your service team and always keep that work coming in. So I was wrong, Tim, this is not going to be a two episode session. This would be a three episode session. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I was just looking at my watch and this is going, but that's okay. This is, this is the marathon and we're on mile uh, 19 right now. Uh, TR, this is a really, really good question. And this question says, how does one compete against the competition when they too listen and apply everything they have heard on this podcast? Mm. Well, um, I'd go back to something that I've, I've said often, and that's that obsessing about your competition is ignorant and ignoring your competition is arrogant and the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle and i would tell whoever the person is who sent this in to relax a little bit because the statistics don't bear out what they are concerned about happening and that's that somebody hears everything on this podcast and puts it into practice The statistics, Tim, say this, that people that not even just listening to a podcast, but they pay 
They pay for their travel, they pay for a hotel, and they pay for a conference registration, and they attend a professional industry conference, and they hear something or they see something that they go, man, that's a great idea. And they write it down and they're committed to when they're going to start it back in their business. Do you know how many people actually take action based on something they've heard at a conference like that? 2%. Two out of a hundred. So think about that. They've they've invested money and time to go to something. They hear something that's going to help their business. Yet only two percent of them, when they get back into the whirlwind of the business and they get busy on the urgent, and the urgent crowds out the important, they don't get it done. So there's not even the amount of of effort and investment to listen to this podcast. So I would say, instead of worrying about how to compete with those people and what they're doing, take all of those calories and all of those energies and make sure your team is using everything on this podcast that you think is going to be beneficial to your business. That's really good. It reminds me of a conversation that I had actually with VP Burger. This is probably five years ago. It was right at the beginning of Wi Fire, and uh, I was I was talking to you and 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 uh, and and showing it to to VP to get his take on it. And at the time, I was really nervous that somebody was gonna rip it off. And um, I'll never forget. I was driving home to Portland from Seattle. I'm on I five, and uh, and I called up VP to chat with him. And I, and I just told him this, I was, I was really nervous about it. And ironically, actually, I think that this was, this was like three months before the podcast started. So this was like four and a half, five years ago. And, uh, and we were actually talking about the genesis of this podcast, but anyway, he, he told me, he said, Tim, don't worry about anybody ripping this off. He goes, you know, you could, you could hand someone the textbook on how to learn to fly a plane they still got to learn to fly that plane and it does not matter that it's spelled out for them. And, and I've always thought about that. And I think that that's incredibly wise that execution is hard, no matter, no matter how much the path has been laid out for you, execution's hard. And, and I would say that being faithful to execute will, it will just, it will, it will, it will treat you right. And, and, and many people will listen and many people will be inspired. But like you said, Tim, they, they fail to execute. Um, I think that the other thing too, is that different people execute in, in, in different ways, you know, that, that, you know, me and you, Tim, in a lot of ways were similar, but we could sit through a conference and listen to the same content, taking the same notes, and we would go and apply it differently, that there'd be principles of similarity but your business, I, I don't think will look like a, like a carbon copy of the other person that's listening to it. Instead, I think both businesses will probably be, be better and more customers will end up buying from you because they have a, they have a good experience. But yeah, I'd, I'd say just cause you've got the manual doesn't make it easy to learn to fly. Yeah. No, knowing is not doing. And, and like I said, you, you hear a lot of important things on this podcast, but the urgency of the business, unless you have self-discipline, unless you have the, the urgency of the business will swallow up the important every day. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to flip the script to some questions that I have for you to, to round this out. And so I'm not going to give any, any comment to these. I, I, I would just like to hear your take on this. TR, you've been in the game now for multiple decades serving the industry. What's the best decision you've made in your career? Um, the best professional decision? 
Um, Whatever direction you want to take it. Yeah, that's the, we better leave it there because personal decisions are, are I'd have a hard time figuring that one out. Um, I would say the best professional decision I made was saying yes to Joe O'Brien, who uh, I was 24 years old. Um, when I when I got out of high school, I had one passion and two interests. I had a passion around golf, and I had an interest in teaching and an interest in law enforcement. And so when the golf season was over at college and my passion season was over, I didn't have a strong enough interest in teaching to stay in school. So I left college, hence the bartending job. Yeah. And but I still had the interest in law enforcement and I had just had an application accepted by the Indiana State Police. And so the only thing next step was to pass a physical, which at 24, I shouldn't have had a problem doing. Uh, but Joe Bryan, who was the general sales manager for Majestic Fireplaces, always came into that bar. And he drank a Beefeater martini dry, two olives, stirred, not shaken. Um, and he always drank it up. And so when he walked into the bar, I would see him walk in and I would make it and I would hand it to him. And so one night he just said, you know, you need to be selling fireplaces. And I said, you are out of your mind. I'm going to be in four months. I'm going to be an Indiana State Trooper making $12,500 a year with a car. And he told me what I would be making as a fireplace salesman with a car, um, <laughs> including expenses and other things. And um, uh, it, I, I went to work for him uh, almost on the spot because he was very engaging. So saying yes to him was a little decision in the moment. Um, but it put me on a path that sent me to Kansas City, which is where our Justine and I met. So it's how I met my wife. Um, that's it's let us live in some of the best cities in the country in Austin and Phoenix and now here in the Twin Cities. And so that simple decision put in play, put in motion, um, basically what my entire everything important in my life to me right now, um, the things that I value came from that. Yes. in that bar in Roanoke, Indiana. Hmm. You know, it's funny as you, as you tell that story, I, I would say one of the best decisions of my professional career has been to go to your builder sales training in California. And, and no joke, like for me, that was a pivotal moment, like your conversation with Joe O'Brien. But what's funny, I, I haven't told this story before to many people, but at the time, this is going back, I don't know, seven years ago or so. And I... I was looking pretty heavily at a different job within the industry. There was a there's another business that I thought would be a really good opportunity to go to. And I'd been I'd been at Fireside for maybe two years or so, year and a half, and uh, wasn't sure if that was going to be the the future for me. I turned in my resume, and they never called me back for an interview. And because of that, I said yes to go to the builder training. And I'm so thankful that they never called me back. Um, my life would have been much different without, without going to that. So, so that's, uh, so that's great. So, we, so I was able to be successful because I was your second choice. That's right. That's right. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, here's a question for you. What are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? Um, I, I, I think I would, I would tie that to my first answer a little bit. Um, you and I both have a common friend in, in Bradley Hartman. 
and and I was on his podcast one time, and he asked what he called the Cheryl Crow question, which is what's what's your beautiful mistake? What's the biggest mistake you've made that turned out great? And my answer to that was not finishing college because that put a chip on my shoulder that made me a lifelong learner. It always made me insecure that I didn't belong in the room. Um, and so what what that what that allowed me to do was to have a, a work ethic and a learning ethic that led me to uh, a level of contribution to both uh, HHT and I think the broader industry. Um, I've been able to have a level of contribution that that I don't think most people today would be able to make without a degree. I know that I wouldn't be able to be hired at HHT today with without a degree. I think I'm the last generation to have gotten to the level that I have in a publicly held company. In a private company, sky's the limit, but in a publicly held large organization. Um, the level of contribution that I've been blessed and allowed to make um, with not having a formal education, but working through everything and continuing to learn. I'm really proud of of that when I look back at the people like you, like you, like you who have been to that builder sales training and were pretty skeptical of saying, man, this feels like a lot of work. And then two or three months later, I'd get those emails going, well, I was, nothing else was working. So I tried what you said, right? And, and it worked. And so those kind of emails, I've got a separate file where I've, I've kind of kept those and, and I go back and get energy out of those on low days where, where people have written and said, you know, my sales career is better, um, because of what I learned from you. Mm-hmm. What should most people understand? What should most people understand? Yeah. Um, well, certainly more people. More people should understand that you are getting exactly the results you deserve. Um, we, uh, we have become... And now, now I feel like the old "you kids get off my lawn" guy. Uh, that I think the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But we've become so tribalized, Tim, and and the a lot of media makes money off of us, uh, of separating us out and kind of pitting one type of people against another. And that mentality, I think, has made us too quick to look for blame outside of ourselves. And that has caused what I believe to be a degradation in personal responsibility, in self-accountability. And so there's just too many people today, I think, that look for a scapegoat that look, when they're not getting the results they want, that it's somebody else's fault, that there's somebody else they can blame, that they were... Uh, inconvenienced, or they were not given the same level playing field, whatever you, whatever they, they can find all kinds of reasons and excuses. And I, I would just tell everybody to, if you, if you want to put something on your Christmas list this year, put a mirror on it. And when somebody gives you a mirror and you want to start blaming, get that mirror out because you are getting, and I don't care if you own the business, I don't care if you've been in the business for a month. You are getting 
exactly the results you deserve. All of us are. Hmm. So with that, you are riding off into the sunset for HHT in March. And I'm thankful that you're going to be at the HPB Expo this year. It's going to be really, really cool. Question I have for you now is you've got all of this wisdom and knowledge that is, you know, I mean, it's been benefiting our industry for decades. So where are you going to apply that in, in retirement? What's retirement hold for Tim Rethlick? The, the, the age old question that, which is, are you ever going to get out of here? Roughly. Um, and it's, and it's time we we've actually, it's not just me. It's, it's, it's within HHT there. There are quite a few of us uh, senior leaders. And I use that term in more in terms of longevity and years than I do rank, but there's a lot of senior leaders that are, that are moving on to, off the stage and which is a really good thing because we've got some really bright and very talented people that need to to move up. And and I guess I would that would be a word of warning, that caution that I would put to some of the owners that listen to your podcast here too, is that you you may feel like you're the only one that can land all the planes in your business, but uh, you cannot uh, have that onboarding conversation with a new hire and talk about what's their ladder for. Uh, advancing in your organization if you're not willing to let go of the reins on certain parts of it, right? Um, and so I think uh, some of your other podcast guests this season have have done a good job of detailing and, and uh, explaining how they have eventually gotten comfortable with get letting other people run their business. I, I think it was, gosh, it was, um, I think Mark Stoner who said he didn't even own the keys to the buildings in his <laughs> yeah. business. I, I oh my gosh. I about walked up the sidewalk on that one. That was hilarious. <laughs> but, uh, I, I'm not, uh, retiring. I am refiring, uh, as I'm putting it. Um, I, I hope to stay involved in some type of a consultative position to the hearth industry because it's an industry that has benefited my family and me for four and a half decades. And I feel I owe back to that. So uh, I'll be available for for that. Um, but really what I'm probably most passionate about is a, is a, new, pro, a new nonprofit that we've gotten off the ground in the Twin Cities here called AIM, which is an acronym for Always Intentional Man. And um, when, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, resources, as there should be, for young women who are facing an unexpected pregnancy. And there are organizations that will, you know, walk along beside her. It's a hard decision, you know, yeah. to have, have a child, not have the child. Um, but there are very few resources for the father. And if you want to hear a, a bit of an astounding statistic, 80% of the women who had an abortion said that they would have brought the child to term had the father or one close family member said, I'm with you on this. I'll walk beside you on this. Wow. 80%. Didn't mean they were going to keep the, the child long term, but they would at least have had the child. Um, and so fathers play such a pivotal role in this. And what we were seeing were you, these young men were coming on the appointment 
with the the mother for an ultrasound or to get counseling or to get career coaching. And they would just sit in the lobby and nobody would talk to them. Hmm. And we start engaging a little bit. And what we find is that they they want to be a dad, but they either I they never had it modeled well or it was modeled poorly. They either had no father or they had an abusive father. And so when faced with that fight or flight, they're scared of it. And so they run away from it. And so their default mode is I don't have any business being a father. I don't want anything to do with this. Let's not have the child. And what we're finding is all they need is they just need some organization to say, look, what are your questions? We've got we've got fathers who are willing to and we're training coaches. Now we have content we've developed. We've had a, a grant, an initial grant from uh, one of the original founders of Best Buy, who's given us a two year grant to kind of get started wow. and get this thing off the ground. Um, we have a curriculum that we're training coaches to um, one of the blessings again, you know, uh, Hearth and Home Technologies is sending me off in high fashion here that not not often when you're 68 years old, are you offered a scholarship, but HHT sent me to coaching school during the COVID shutdown. And so I have a certified coaching um, license through the ICF, International Coaching Federation. So we've, we're taking people like myself uh, who have experience being fathers, who have a background in coaching. We're training them on this learning journeys curriculum, and they are then being volunteer coaches for these young men. And so that's where I'm going to spend um, at least 20 to 25 percent of my waking hours going forward uh, on that yeah. and helping to develop the coaches and become a coach to coach and get more of them out there. And hopefully that's something that spreads beyond the Minnesota borders, but we're trying to get stable before we do that and get the program down tight. Yeah. Man, that's huge, TR. And I mean, as I've said, you've been just so influential in my life. You're someone that I I, I look to from afar and, and very often think about what would TR advise me to do in this situation. And uh and and, and my hope is that uh is that I can I can kind of be a, a living report card for, for what you've poured into. So you hope you're the living report card that um Here's something that, I, that that hit me. Uh, I, I was very late to watch the movie The Bucket List with Morgan Freeman and, and Jack Nicholson. There was a line yeah. in there of as Morgan Freeman's character got to say it towards the end about Jack Nicholson's character. But he says, you measure yourself by the people who measure themselves by you. And so if you're going to be my guinea pig to be a human report card, that's uh, that's high enough, high enough praise for me because you're you're one of the shining stars of our industry. And um, what you do is as truly as a service through this podcast. I, I, I just I get frustrated that more people don't know about it and take advantage of it. <laughs> well, thanks, man. Yeah, it's it's an honor. And uh, and uh, I don't know, man, it's it's a. Uh, it's it's an honor to serve. That's that's all I can say. I get I get a ton of joy out of it. As, as we finish here, Tr, um, I'd like you to finish this sentence for me. I've asked different guests throughout the season. Sales is a game of. Sales is a game of. Others. That's a. That's. Do I want that? Yeah, that it's either it's either that or sales is a game of serving which is different than service but it, it the 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 punchline is it's not about 
you, right? And the 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 old line that says you can get anything in life you want if you just help enough other people get what they want, and and to have that others mindset that sales is not about it. it gosh, it's 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 not any more complicated than that. Sales is only about others. It's about having empathy and problem solving and getting people to achieve, helping them to achieve what you uniquely are qualified to help them do in their life. I love it, man. Well, this is the marathon. This will be the longest podcast episode we've ever done. I'm, I'm we sure have to that. cut this. And I'm going to savor. No, no, I, I don't know. I don't know, man. I'm going to, I'm going to listen back to it, but I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to savor it like a, like a nice uh, wow. glass of wine. But TR, thank you for serving. Better be a Magnum bottle of wine because it's going to take a lot to get through this. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for serving the industry. Um, thanks for your investment in me and thanks for your investment in this podcast. We appreciate you. Tim, thank you. It's been been uh, been fun being here and uh, maybe under another title, but maybe we'll be back someday. You never know. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with the legend, Tim Rethlake. I absolutely loved it and am better for it. As I'm looking over my notes for the conversation, man, there is just so much here to go on. You know, when when TR talked about the fact that sales training must be ongoing, that's so true. I mean, we, 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 we talked about it in the conversation, but I want to circle back because I think for many companies, they think even if they have some semblance of a sales process that, well, we we did it once and so they've got it now, right? Maybe it's even written down, but it's like taking a bath. I mean, you got to do it regularly. Taking a shower once a year doesn't do anybody any good because you stink really, really soon after. It's got to be an ongoing practice. And truly, if you're wondering, well, where do I start with this? I don't have a sales process. You know where I'd recommend starting? Just do live sales practice. If once a week you can take an hour and just run live sales practice, hey, I'll be the customer, you be the salesperson, and then let's switch. That will start to expose so much that I would imagine you and your team are blind to. I've had this happen to me time and time again, where by practicing and even recording myself and watching it, I start to become aware of how I come across. And so I would imagine you have some sales reps that are really good salespeople, and I would encourage you to invite them in, not for product training, but for sales training. If you can do that on a regular basis, I think you're going to be better for it and to keep your team energized. When TR talked about the question of our salespeople born with it or can they be made? And he, and he talked about just some of the inherent qualities to look for. I, I thought it was so awesome. You know, just the basic questions about, tell me about your your longest friendship and, and when did you get in touch with that person last? Um, what are you reading right now? What are you listening to right now? What are you passionate about? What do you love doing where time just flies when you're in the middle of it? You know, I, I, I think that things like that are, just really, really good. And, and and I found that as I have asked interview questions like that, the answers that you get, uh, they, they would surprise you because they, they're, they, they're not typical questions. And so people are, are often caught a little off guard, which can lead to, to better responses I've found. You know, another thing that I, that I like is when was the last time you had to apologize to someone? 
It's one of my favorite interview questions. In general, if if you have a team member that is not someone that can think of the last time they apologized, they're they're probably not going to be the right person. And and it is hard to find people. There's no question about that. Our industry is not exactly like a a sexy industry or anything. So so it can take time. But I I do believe, like we discussed, salespeople are are not born. They are absolutely made. But there's definitely a good place to start from. And I think that some of these characteristics can uh, can start you out in the right direction. One of the other concepts that I thought was really good was when TR mentioned knowing is not doing. And, and that was in reference to the question of what happens if you have a competitor who listens to the podcast or maybe reads the Firetime magazine and is applying the same thing. Man, that's so good. Yeah, knowing is not doing. I heard Gary Vaynerchuk say once, you can't read push-ups. You know, you, you got to do it. And no matter what, execution is hard. It's absolutely brutal. And if if you're someone who has felt discouraged at, you know, everybody's smarter than me. I just can't seem to get a leg ahead. I would tell you that that focusing on the simple things you know you need to do and executing over and over and over is what will take your business to the next level. Truly, I have found very often the smarter people are, the harder it is for them to execute because the smarter people are often they psych themselves out of execution because they think about every reason it could go wrong or well, what would happen in this situation, what would happen in this situation. And and trust me, there's a there's a time and place to do risk analysis and to make sure that you're not spinning your gears in the wrong direction. But it keeps going back to what we always say on the podcast, you can't steer a parked car. What I found often from really intelligent people that have a hard time executing, most often it's not actually all of the reasons they're thinking that it won't work. It's fear of failing or fear of looking stupid. And so people distract themselves with a risk analysis that at the end of the day keeps them safe from executing because, well, I, I, I can't do this because, you know, this, this wouldn't work because of this, this, and this. And, you know, I, I looked at, at the strategy of what would happen long-term. And so, yeah, so we're just holding off on that for now. Again, you don't want to be hasty in these things, but once you have found a direction to go in, you need to execute. And like Tim said, knowing is not doing just because you listen to the podcast or just because you read every business book doesn't mean that you execute. And actually when Tim talked about people who spend a bunch of money and fly out to conferences, write it down and don't implement, I, I've seen that firsthand. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about a, uh, a conference that I went to that was a high dollar conference, multiple thousands of dollars. This is about three, four years ago. And I had people sitting right next to me taking the same notes that I was. We were just talking in the breaks about how amazing it was. And, you know, four years later, those basic principles that were talked about at the conference still have not been implemented in their business. So I think, I think I would just say, take heart that, that if you can be faithful to execute things will work themselves out in the way that they should. And again, you know, two people's execution is, is going to be different and your business, it won't look like a carbon copy of theirs, even though there might be some common ground in, in where you get your inspiration in your strategy. When TR talked about sales being a game of others, obviously that's, that's so true. And, and I hope that that's the heart behind this podcast as you listen to it. 
that this is not a podcast about helping you strong-arm people. And even in the tagline, when we say, you know, make it so stupidly easy to buy, there's no excuse not to, you know, that's that's obviously tongue-in-cheek to the context of our industry because our industry makes it so freaking hard to buy a fireplace, you know. we got to throw everything into making it easy. But the reason we're doing that isn't to pull the wool over someone's eye or to, you know, to make the kill the reason is because we want to bless somebody. And I just go back to that conversation with Kirk Newby, right? We're planting a tree. And the hope would be that, that we can eat some of the fruit and we can actually prune and water that tree. And it's, and it's a win for both sides. That's the reason that we do sales is to help others solve problems, just like TR was saying. So all of that to say, I got a ton of value out of that with Tim. And I hope that you did as well. Now, As I mentioned, this is the final episode of this season of the podcast, and so what we'll be doing is shifting to Firetime Magazine Rapid Reaction episodes for the coming weeks until we start Season 10 of the podcast, and Season 10 is going to start the Tuesday after our HPB Expo, which is Tuesday, March 14th. We'll be jumping in with Season 10. 10. But in the meantime, this is what you can expect. So for the coming weeks, every week, we will play you an audio article from the Firetime magazine, and then I'll jump on to give you my rapid reaction to it. What I do is I listen to these articles in real time, I take notes, and then the second it's over, I hit record and I go. So that way you can you can see how I think about and how I process the content from the Firetime magazine. I'm, I'm telling you, the content in this magazine is absolutely incredible and the chorus of voices that are creating it is amazing and I myself consume it every single month. Now, there's a chance that we will have a couple of bonus episodes during this gap in the season as well, so stay tuned on that. And we also have really big plans for the HPB Expo this year, so stay tuned for that. I'm I'm telling you, if you're on the fence about going to Kentucky, book your ticket because I'm just telling you, we've got something planned that will make the entire trip worth it. And even if you can't make it, you might still be able to tap into it to some degree. So I'll I'll leave it there. But we are really excited for what is going to be coming up at the HPB Expo. The final thing that I will leave you with before I sign off is a story about Tim. And as, as I mentioned, Tim, for me is the top of Mount Rushmore for professional mentors and heroes of mine. You know, truly, I mean, he he is a mentor and a hero, and I'm, I'm honored to call him a friend as well. But going to that builder sales training down in California literally changed my life. It did. There's these moments I look back on where the Lord was going ahead of me, and that was one of those moments where my life would have been different if I wouldn't have gone to it. I mean, I could tell you stories even about in the genesis of Wi-Fi where, where interactions with Tim, things that he said, phone calls that he made, it gave me the confidence and the direction to move Wi-Fi along at very, very critical times. But more than all of that, I think what I have gained most from Tim is the ability for someone who loves me to give me difficult feedback. And I'll, I'll tell you a story about this. This is probably four years ago, maybe three and a half years ago. And we were up in Seattle, Washington getting dinner. And I was in the middle of a very difficult situation at my job. 
and we had dinner and I was kind of telling Tim where things were and, and every reason that it was so difficult for me. And I had just a great sob story about all the reasons why adversity was working against me and I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do and some of the results that we were getting weren't what I wanted. And, and I had, that was it. It was a great, it was a great story. And, and, and Tim honestly tore it to shreds and he started asking some really hard questions about, well, okay, what about this? What about this? What about this? Why is that the case? Okay. What are you going to do about it? And, and there's a little bit more to it than that. There's some confidential details in it, but, but in that conversation, he was not content to let me sit in the satisfaction of me being a victim, right? When I, when I made myself the victim, I can sit in that and not have to do anything because it's not my fault. It's all happening to me. And so therefore all I can do is, is complain about it. And he, he took me to task. And I remember at one point I, I said to him something along the lines of like, look, you know, if, if, if everything was, was equal then, and I don't think I'm forgetting this, but if my memory serves, he cut me off and he said, Tim, all things aren't equal. And I remember driving to Bellevue, Washington from that dinner. We met down by the Seattle airport. So I had like a 25 minute drive. It's like 1130 midnight. It was a late dinner. And I'll never forget thinking about all things aren't equal. All things aren't equal. And I thought about when you're a leader all things aren't equal. Often we want to complain about other people. Well, my employee is not doing this or the, the market's doing this. My customers are doing this. My boss is doing this. I, I you know, uh, I, I can't do that. And, and, and I get it. There's a time and a place, but, but we're presenting those arguments as if all things are equal, but they're not. You're a human being in some kind of a position of leadership which means that you already have privilege tilted your way that is beyond what's equal. And that means that you don't have to be a victim, that you can do something about it. And it might mean quitting your job. If you're truly in a situation where there is no way to move forward with the progress that, that you think needs to happen, it might be time to go. But it might not. It might be time to think about things in a different way and to start asking the question, what am I going to do about it instead of complaining about what everybody else isn't doing? And I remember thinking on that drive, someday there, there might be a leadership book that comes out that's called All Things Aren't Equal and why that's the best news ever. I mean, I'll never forget that conversation with him. And again, that was one of those moments for me of having to decide regardless of the situation I'm in, do I want to play the victim or am I willing to rise up, look at myself in the mirror and try to be humble thinking, you know what? You might have a part to play in this. And if you're part of the problem, you can be part of the solution. So I I really value that. And my hope is that as you've heard Tim in all the episodes that he's been in, and we'll try to link to all those in the show notes, that you've been able to glean some wisdom from this man. 
Now, if this podcast has been a blessing for you and you want to support it financially, you can do that by going to the website, patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash it's fire time. And if you have made it this far, congratulations, you're at the end of the marathon. That bottle of wine is down to the last few drops and I hope it's been rich. This entire season for me has been an absolute blessing. We do not take you for granted. Know that your work matters no matter where you're at, no matter what situation you're dealing with. Our industry needs you. If you're listening to this, you have the ability to make a difference and we believe in you. So I hope you have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. God bless you and God bless the people that you serve. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time. All in to burn. 